0: Welcome back to Miskatonic University's Graphic Literature and History and Society Remote Education course, the comics course. I am, as always, your professor, Professor Hamby, here with our loyal and disposable T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan.
1: Hello, Rowan.
0: Uh, Now, we do have our nightly storm starting up here, so we may get interrupted by some lightning and thunder, but we'll get through it. This is one of our quick supplementary... Uh, Course sessions in order to meet my quotient required by the department head, Dr. Feckett, who said I was not teaching enough hours. (sighs) So, here we are. So, in our midweek session of feckin' idgits, I'm going to once again talk about people who are feckin' idgits. As should not surprise anybody, these stories come from the internet, which is the land of feckin' idgits. Not that these people didn't exist before the internet, but for some reason we decided to actually give them a means of talking as if we wanted to hear them. And then they'd start listening to each other. And then they'd build tools called Facebook for this. So we're going to go over this. And, and I just want to address a point. One student in a recent evaluation asked why I was bitter. Okay. I want to tell you something. Oh, no. I am a professor at a respected but small university in massachusetts i'm still an assistant professor despite teaching for over 20 years because i don't have my phd yet because it's stuck in a review board of people who refuse to recognize my genius and if you want to know about my bitterness my bitterness may one day be the savior of humanity Because if it could be converted into power, it would fuel starships that would cross the void of space. So I want you to wallow and humble yourself before the magnificence of my bitterness, not bitch about it on my evaluation forms. Thank you. (laughs) So let's get started. My first one is from a resource a website called Comic Book News, and they put in large print, Superman will be gay in DC Comics. Oh, my Lord. Now, you asked me a question about this before we started, Rowan. Do you want to repeat it?
1: Why do people care if he is or isn't?
0: Because they, they are... They need a heteronormative world that is so strictly heteronormative in order to validate their self-identity because they're terrified on some level that they might not be 100% straight and that some aspect of their life is a pathetic lie simply built because they're sheeple to follow social norms.
1: Makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is pretty much the reason I've thought about this. You know, unlike those of us who are shall we say, comfortable heterosexuals. I want the population of gay men to increase. They say gay men are about 10%. I want it to be closer to 80. Now, I don't want the percentage of heterosexual women to change. But the smaller the dating pool for women get, the better I look. That's all I got to say. Oh, God. So, I'm just saying, if you're out there and you're like, well, I'm straight and I don't want people to be other men to be gay you're not a rational human being. And you're not really all that straight. I'm just saying. Just saying. Um, but anyway, so this follows the news of the Tim Drake Robin being not straight. He's constantly being reported as being gay or bisexual. Uh, in fact, all we know is he's biromantic. But uh, he's, basically, we live in a society now where not straight equals gay, if not straight and not gay equals bi. And we just ignore all the other possibilities.
1: Because boxes.
0: But, you know, sadly, that's actually progress. Anyway, so some f- nitwit named Van Screever who has been a former DC Comics artist, which, I mean... Okay, I I know that the article calls him former DC Comics artists in order to give him credibility, and he repeatedly says in this article, Oh, I know people. Look, Blue Jack down the street who buys liquor for teenagers in exchange for buying him some Wild Dog 4040 is a former artist for DC. Find me somebody who isn't. I'm not impressed by this. And the Oh, I know people... This is the adult version of teenagers being like, I'm not a virgin. Yeah, I I, I met this girl over the summer. She's in another town. You wouldn't know her.
1: If you have to say you know people, you don't.
0: Right. So, Van Scrivener says on his Comic Artist Pro Secrets YouTube channel.
1: Oh, God.
0: Clark Kent is going bye-bye. Well, you know, anybody who's read any amount of the DC Superman titles in the last few years knows that they're trying to make Jonathan Kent more prominent. Jonathan Kent being the in-canon son of Superman, the Superboy right now. He was prominent in Brian Michael Bendis' Legion of Superheroes um, and has been in these future titles as the next Superman. So the idea that they're positioning him possibly as a future Superman is not that shocking. That is a hard transition to make, though. Other than the Golden Age characters being replaced by the Silver Age characters, that's never really been done with major ones. And note that they didn't even really do that with Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. They just kind of retconned that when they had the JLA meet the JSA, Justice League of America meet the Justice Society of America the publishing of the titles was actually consistent. So while it's easy to read something into this and it's easy to assume that they're playing around with Jonathan Kent as Superman and gauging responses, I I think it's far too early to assume what will happen. It would be pretty revolutionary if they actually managed to replace Superman. Now, here's where this all goes off the line. Because saying that, Jonathan Kent might be the next Superman and he might be represented as gay, is reasonable to me. I mean, DC does want to signal inclusivity and diversity. I think it would be really risky to do it with a central character as Superman. But with it being an alt-Superman, kind of like having two Spider-Mans, I could see them perhaps trying that out. Here's where it goes completely off the rails, though. Quote, DC Comics has had a lot of problems maintaining the trademark for Superman because you know he's old. He's an old character and the family would desperately like money because their family, their ancestors who created Superman, got completely effed over. I mean, Superman has made billions and billions and billions of dollars in revenue and these two boys who made up Superman got bupkis. They were Jewish. They got bupkis. They got nothing. Now, he gets some bonus points for using bupkis. It's a great word. Um... But, first of all, these Jewish kids have names. Uh, They were Siegel and Schuster. And the issue was not trademark. It was copyright. And if you go, oh, well, they're like the same thing. No, they're not even close to the same thing. Not at all. If you think they are close to the same thing, you're a feckin' idiot.
1: Read up on laws.
0: Um, Not even terribly deeply. Now, the his ancestors, um, we're talking about grandparents. We usually don't use the term ancestors for grandparents, even if it's kind of technically accurate. Uh, The history of Superman is very well documented in terms of his litigation. The first lawsuit happened in 1947, less than a decade after the character was launched in action comics, uh, has been litigated off and on ever since. It's very well documented. You can go read it for yourself. None of it's about trademark. It's all about copyright. And let's talk about that super briefly. Super briefly. So when Siegel and Schuster sued in 1947, because they would basically signed a uh, work-for-hire contract, the basic argument was we didn't really know what we were doing and and justice isn't being served here. Uh, and what the judge in 19, I believe by the time the ruling came out, it was 1948. Uh, the judge ruled that Superboy was not a derivative work. Now, the concept of a derivative work in copyright is very important because Copyright is literally the right to copy, the right to recreate something. If you own the copyright to Superman, you are the only one that can make Superman or license it out. And that is true of derivative works. Now, what's a derivative work? If somebody came along and created Superboy as a derivative work, then that still, they do not have the right to do that unless they had permission from National Allied Publications, Detective Comics, who we now call DC Comics. Um, And so there's a big question about who created Superboy. Now, Superboy was originally published by DC Comics. However, he was actually created by Jerome Siegel. When Jerome Siegel was in the army in Hawaii, Siegel was concerned about being pushed out from his writing duties on Superman, which he was well paid for. In fact, DC was even paying him because they used his name on them, even when the scripts were ghostwritten by somebody else. He proposed Superboy, DC passed on it, and they had a contract where they had a six-week right of refusal. Long, many, many months later, years in fact, I think, after that six weeks passed, they published Superboy stories written by somebody else using elements from his stories. Now, because the judge ruled that it was not a derivative work, but a completely separate work, that means that DC had no right to claim ownership of it unless they bought it under a work for hire. And since they published it after that six weeks, that meant that Jerome Siegel owned Superboy. Outright, clear. Boom, done. Now, honestly, claiming that Superboy is not a derivative work of Superman is just downright dumb. The judge was wrong. And this came up over the years. In fact, when a new lawsuit came out from the estates of Siegel and Schuster in 2006, uh, the origin, the judge that sat on the case tried to sidestep it by claiming res judatica uh, and a collateral estoppel principles which are basically two things that say, look, this has already been ruled on. I'm not going to reevaluate it. And those principles exist because they don't want people bringing the same things to court over and over and over, just hoping they'll eventually hit a judge who agrees with them.
1: It sounds like someone got paid money under the table because that's so obvious.
0: Yes, but it is a ruling that stayed in place for a long time. And it's a valid thing. Judges at a certain point have to say, we trust the rulings of past judges, even if we disagree mm-hmm. with them or the whole thing becomes chaos. Mm-hmm. You just refile lawsuits over and over and over.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, is that what you want to happen to our legal system?
1: No, but I'm saying the first ruling because it's so obvious that he's a derivative work,
0: but it worked well for Jerome Siegel in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, if he was paid off by somebody, it wasn't DC for that. Okay. He ruled for DC in saying that they had the legitimate copyright to Superman But it would have been in D.C.'s favor to call it a derivative work, because then D.C. would have owned it, too. Okay. So he kind of played the role of King Solomon, and he gave half to one side and half to the other. Okay. And in the 2006 lawsuit, this was still at issue, Uh, uh, and it was a concern, because by now copyrights are being refiled uh, i'm not going to go into all the stuff about the Sonny bono extension copyright law and when the states filed them and all that it's com- that's a lot of detail there we don't need right now but basically who owns superboy came into question again have you ever wondered why smallville never uses the name superboy the tv show did you think it was a dramatic gesture to avoid you know certain mythologies no it was because they didn't want to step into legal problems. There was a Legion of Superheroes TV show that was intended to be Superboy in the Legion of Superheroes. And then instead they used Superman as a teenager to avoid that legal pitfall. Now in this 2006 lawsuit, a new judge stepped in after the first one left. I forget why. I think he might've had medical problems or something. And the new judge actually vacated the 1948 ruling and ruled that Superboy was a derivative work. And what that meant was that however the chips fell about the ownership of Superman became Mm all-important. So this argument that Scriver Skiver puts forward, Ethan Van Skiver, that's about trademark, A is wrong, it's about copyright. Um, And B, that they're going to put... Superboy forward as a new Superman and make him gay to avoid these intellectual property issues is rubbish because a new Superman is, even if you consider him separate from the original, just because it's Jonathan Kent instead of Clark Kent, he's still going to clearly be a derivative work and still fall under the same copyright claims and ownership claims, the exact same ones. Um... Now, are they going to fall under all the same claims? This is where it gets a little bit messier. Now, he talks about old, 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 you know, old characters, and he talks about the, the Siegel and Schuster, although at least in the uh, comic book news article, he doesn't mention them by name. Uh, but Siegel and Schuster's claims, if they make a claim of ownership, their estates rather, are going to be legitimate, whether it's Jonathan Kent or Clark Kent. I mean... It's Superman, the same powers, very similar outfit, literally the son of the other. You don't get more derivative of a work than being the child using the same name with the same powers and almost identical outfit. That is as derivative as you fucking get. Derivative Uh, copyright. And a professional comic book artist should know what derivative copyright is.
1: This is the example they show you in class. Just to make sure you understand the idea.
0: Right. Now, maybe Ethan Van Skiver gets this better than the article points out. Maybe the article has given him short shrift. I've not gone to watch the YouTube video. Um, But it's ridiculous. It's just plain ridiculous. Now, could you potentially argue that when eventually Superman comes up for public domain, that they would have value in creating a new Superman who's more distant? from the original absolutely but they don't need to make him gay for that and that's going to be a whole big bloody mess anyway because the only stuff that's going to come up as public domain at the very very first is going to be his appearance in action comics number one where you're basically going to have lois lane metropolis him and his powers i don't think you even have maybe you have the idea of krypton but i mean there's no smallville you don't I mean, if you're looking into a story with Brainiac or you know Lex Luthor or any of that stuff, it's not going to be public domain. That stuff's going to come out very slowly. So that's going to be a big mess. And in fact, I see the potential for DC to sue the hell out of a lot of people who are probably going to jump the gun on that stuff.
1: I see lawsuits in the future.
0: A lot of them. So anyway, uh, I, I hope that Mr. Van Skeever, Skiver understands these concepts better than how comic book news represented them. Uh, but they represented him as a feckin' idiot. The quotes, maybe they were pulled out of context, make him sound like a feckin' idiot. And I'm pretty confident that the person who wrote the article might be a feckin' idiot. Um so and and if they want to make Jonathan Kent gay and you know he's Damian Kent's little butt buddy or whatever. Let them be gay. I don't know. I don't, it doesn't matter. I just don't give a shit. Um. For those guys who do care and are scared by it, I think you should look at your masculinity a little bit. Just saying, because it sounds a little fragile.
1: Oh, more than a little.
0: So let's jump into the other one now that we're talking about masculinity. See how I segued that?
1: Uh huh. Very, very clever.
0: To talk about some more feckin' Now, this feconidget is a guy named Warren Farrell, Ph.D. Now, back in the 90s, he had a huge best-selling book called The Myth of Male Power. I never read it, I'll admit, and part of why I didn't read it was whenever the topic of this book came up with people, it was hugely triggering. And I do not enjoy conversations about things that involve facts with people that respond purely with emotion. It's just not something I'm interested in doing. Now, if you want to talk about your personal values, which are heavily emotion-driven, that's a valid conversation. But if we're supposed to actually be talking about a book and what it says, and you're not going to address what it says because your feelings are too strong, that's not a productive conversation in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't read it, but the I, I will read to you the blurb from Amazon for it which pretty much matches my memory of how people talked about it. The Myth of Male Power, Why Men Are the Disposable Sex, is a 1993 book by Warren Farrell in which the author argues that the widespread perception of men having an inordinate social and economic power is false and that men are systematically disadvantaged in many ways. Now, let's break this apart because it makes uh, multiple claims. It makes three claims specifically. Claim one, and, and this is a this is a a common fallacy to take a statement and talk about a statement as a whole, when part of it may be true or have a degree of truth, and part is false or has a degree of false, and then try to evaluate it as a whole. You cannot do that. So let's break it apart. It makes three claims: inordinate social power.
1: What's social power?
0: Exactly, social means of society. Society includes politics, culture religion i mean it's it's extraordinarily broad um and and i i'm not sure it's productive to try to attempt to talk about the accumulation of all social influences um so so i i think that's just there basically as bait to trigger people Mm -hmm. intentionally because a book that triggers people is going to sell well um that Okay, so the second claim, that men having economic power is false. That, oh and that's just not true. I mean, historically, men have had economic power. We can debate other things, quite a few other things. But men have earned more. Men have been the head of businesses. Um, that's certainly post-World War II and for quite a while before that, men held inordinate economic power. That's just true. The book is here is lying in that regard.
1: Have you never picked up a history book?
0: Right. Well, history books can lie too. But. um, And then the final claim, that men have been systematically disadvantaged in many ways. Now, let us be careful here. It doesn't say that men have been worse off than women in total. It says they've been systematically disadvantaged, disadvantaged in many ways. This is actually true.
1: It is true. But everyone has.
0: Right. Now... I'm not interested in an argument about who's been screwed over worse. Uh, I'm not sure it's productive. And I I think there's a very strong argument to be made that historically women probably have been screwed over more, although there are plenty of subgroups like gay men that have been screwed over pretty badly as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And and even straight, white, middle-class men in America have gotten the short shrift of society telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. And men have had many disadvantages. I mean uh there are many metrics by which men have much worse lives than women this idea of polarizing us is in fact often what fuels misogynistic hate groups in my opinion because there are i have known of men who want to legitimately address issues of men in society and nobody will talk to them except these misogynistic groups so they end up with a home there and that is really sad in my opinion
1: it's sad and dangerous
0: right So what Warren Farrell, PhD, said, and this was broadcast by some other person. um, The quote is, Lois Lane had no interest in Clark Kent, but she fell in love with Superman. She wanted Superman to be able to cry and express emotions. But the man who did cry, express emotions and feelings, was sensitive. Clark Kent, she has zero interest in. So he's addressing this duality that... Women uh, claim that they want a sensitive man, but in fact, they want a hardened man of stone who's emotionless and stoic. Um, I think there was in his generation, which let's be honest, is the boomer generation, um, which is my parents' generation. There's a lot of truth to that. I think that's changing a lot these days. I don't see as nearly as much of that in the younger generations. I think it's less true in my generation and even less in the generations that I'm teaching, like yours, Rowan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, with multiple generations that are into adulthood now past that and where it's changing, that's a pretty broad generalization based on a, things that are largely the past, I think. Yeah. Um, and w- we, can deb- we can have long talks about that. Um, now, are there women like that? Absolutely. I've known some of them personally. Um, But for the real feckinigit award here, we're not gonna talk about a bias of only looking at people of his generation. We're not gonna look at the bias of grouping people with broad inflammatory statements to get attention. For the feckinigit award, we're gonna talk about what he says about Superman, because this is about comics.
1: And how wrong it is.
0: So she says, So he says that what Lois Lane wanted, and he's using Superman as a symbol here, I know that, but it's a shitty symbol because what he, he's using is saying, Superman does not cry. Now, I'm not a big Superman fan. I'm not. I, I honestly have z- almost zero interest in the character. Uh, he's too often a Mary Sue. He's too often in his writing in the past been smug. I actually do kind of like the Superman's where he's very much the boy scout and he's humble and he's more about enduring things than beating things up. Um, But I've, I've never been a big Superman fan. But even I, even I can tell you that two of the most iconic Superman images are of him crying.
1: Even I know these.
0: Right. I mean, Crisis on Infinite Earths, number seven, 1985. The, the wave of the universe is destroying, caught up and kills Supergirl, and Superman stands holding her dead body, and he's crying. It is one of the most powerful images of comic book readers in my generation, Superman emotionally broken and unapologetically crying in front of the assembled heroes of the multiverse. And then, in a very powerful image, from a year or two later, uh, in Alan Moore's classic Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, drawn by classic Superman artist Kurt Swan, inked by the incredible George Perez, Superman sitting in the Fortress of Solitude, silently crying, his face in his hand, with crypto at his feet. Mm-hmm. Superman has always... Superman's not been a hyper-emotional character, Stoicism has certainly been a part of his character, but the sensitive aspect of Superman as someone who cares and someone who would cry, especially at injustice, and this is not an alien idea. It is not far from his character. Um, I I think this uh, uh, publishing-oriented Dr. Farrell uh, uh, has a dubious argument to begin with, but the symbol... That he's chosen to representative Superman shows a clear ignorance of comic books. Clear and utter ignorance. And he probably should not pick a comic book character to be his icon when he doesn't know what the feck he's talking about.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Feckin' idiot. Idiot. All right. So that's the end of my rant for now. We will see you again in a few more days when we talk about some serial killing and graphic novels. All right. Take care.